Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusczak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and on many, many occasions in my life, it's been pointed out to me that my name would get a great score in Scrabble, which is why some people just call me Waldy. Now, to many observers, my world, the world of art, is a world of beauty and refinement, delicacy and poetry. But that is on the outside. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know that on the inside, fists can fly and tempers can rage. So you need someone around you who's handy in a squabble. Someone like my partner on this podcast. They call him the Jason Statham of art history. What he wants, he gets. Where he goes, others are afraid to follow. He is, of course, Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor. Bendy, is this going to be one of our gentle podcasts, or are we going to have a big argument again? Oh, well, time will tell. But you really wouldn't want to rely on me in a fight, Weldy. I'm hopeless. I've only ever been in one fight, and I threw one punch, um, and I missed. So you, you can't depend on me in these situations. If I, I would just cower behind you, I think, if we were ever in any serious trouble. <laughs> no, no, because you're six foot tall, so you could see everything that's coming. I would probably climb on the top of your head and then <laughs> throw burning oil down on the people around you. Um, but yes, of course, we never really fight. We just argue a lot, don't we? Um, but uh, I think this will be a quite a quiet podcast because um, although the issue is terribly important, I don't think you and I disagree too much about it because uh, today's podcast is going to be basically a museum's special. Now, with so many museums around the world closed, it seems to be a good time to think about their future in the post-COVID world. So, in a minute, we'll be talking to a man who knows, a very big honcho in museum land, who's been director of three of Britain's biggest art institutions. So that's coming up, along with all sorts of other stuff. Bendy's going back to Rembrandt again. I'm going to Louisville, Kentucky. And, as always, all the art we talk about, plus bits of info about it, it's all available on zczfilms.com. Or, as our 22 listeners in America would say it, zczfilms.com. Hello, Alaska. Hello, Texas. Hello, New Jersey. We're separated by a big ocean, but we're united by a big truth. And that is that there's always a lot going on in the art world. It's shocking news from the art world. So, Bendy, well, it's not really shocking news, more like shocking things about the art world, I think, this week. I mean, there's always stuff going on. The Beeple thing has continued to rumble, hasn't it? I mean, we, we, we were privileged in a perverse way to be uh, around last week when the actual sale was happening at Christie's, and we watched this ridiculous artwork climb from what we thought was way over the top of $3.5 million dollars to a, a, just a, a completely ridiculous uh, $60.5 million, which with add-ons came very close to $70 million. I mean, I'm still horrified by it, frankly, but there have been some developments, haven't there? Well, we know who bought it, or rather who claims to have bought it. It's someone described as a cryptocurrency whale who goes by the moniker of Metacoven 
and he runs a company called MetaPurse. Or well, I say he, we assume it's a he. Someone has been um, tentatively identified as this person. They are Vinesh Sundaresan, a Singapore-based blockchain entrepreneur. And he is apparently the person who bought it. I can even give you a quote, uh, his view on his, his new purchase. He says, when you think of high-valued NFTs, this one is going to be pretty hard to beat. And here's why. It represents 13 years of everyday work. This is the crown jewel, the most valuable piece of art for this generation. It is worth, are you ready? He yeah. says, $1 billion. <laughs> <laughs> so if you thought $70 million was extraordinary, oh, they're now aiming for a billion dollars. I mean, it's all sci-fi, isn't it? Including all the figures involved. Everything about <laughs> it is is just lost out there in the world of dreams. I mean, Mr. Meta, Meta Kovan, you say that's his name. And imagine if you're ever lending this thing to a show from the collection of Meta Kovan. And I think he's got a partner, hasn't he, who goes by the moniker of Tubador, as in Troubadour, but this is Tubador. So um, obviously, when you're online, you need to have these monikers, don't you? I mean, Mike Vinkelman becomes Beeples. Whatever his name is, the guy from Singapore becomes Meta Kovan. I suppose we have to come up with a couple of ourselves, don't we, Bendy? I mean, Waldy and Bendy's not bad, but it hasn't quite got the ring, has it, of, um, you know, Meta Kovan with its mystical atmospheres. What do you suggest? Wanky and Bonky. <laughs> Binky and Bonky. <laughs> Bink yeah. No, oh, God, I can't, I can't think of anything that really would sum up your, your beauty and elegance and, and, and my stodgy roundness. Um, well, let's, let's think about that. We should come up with something. We'll maybe. invite suggestions. Listeners, please tell us what we should be called out there in the, the, uh, the metaverse, as they're calling it. The metaverse, yes. I'll tell you what, Bendy. We have just taken possession of a shipload of incredibly beautiful T-shirts uh -huh. from the great Metaverse T-shirt production company in the sky. And these Waldy and Bendy T-shirts, which are almost certain to be collector's items in the very near future, <laughs> and we may well be required to bring out uh, NFTs to buy them, nifty to buy the T-shirt, but we might supply the winner of this competition with one. How about that? That's a very good idea. So get in touch. We're on the Twitter. Tell us We're what on you the think Twitter. we should be called. Yes, the best name, best metaversal name for Bendor and myself um, will win a precious Wardian Bendy t-shirt. So yes, the Beeple's thing continues. My God, what a horror that is. Well, they are now proposing to build, um, with what they call the best architects available, a virtual museum to house this masterpiece. And I'm quite intrigued as to what a virtual museum will look like. I mean, the ones I've seen so far look very much like uh, websites. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic to see what we can do to make art slightly more enticing in the virtual age. Because we, when we began this podcast series, we, we did try and review some sort of virtual exhibitions, and, and they're quite unsatisfactory. So um, I think maybe the, the metaverse does have something new to teach us in the, um, the old-fashioned art world, we, and we might yet learn something. Mm. Well, that is right. But we did remember we did begin all this a really long time ago. I mean, you know, that great collector Fred Flintstone uh, <laughs> was around uh, showing off his cave art when you and I started this business. So <laughs> it takes a bit of keeping up, doesn't it, with the, the metaverse. But you're right. I mean, who knows what we can learn from it? And, and I think the, the idea, as, as I understand it, the idea for this new virtual museum that's going to be built around the Beeple's $70 million artwork, when you go to it, you, you don't just buy, as it 
it were an entrance ticket to get into the virtual museum, you're also buying some sort of possession of the virtual museum. So this blockchain business that goes on, you don't just you don't just buy a ticket to the artwork, you also own the whole museum or a part of it. So however many people put in their 500 quid, 600 quid, whatever it's going to be, they're going to own part of the museum as well. Hmm. Like a museum of schmucks to me, but anyway, good luck. It doesn't sound good, no. Let's talk about a real museum, or rather a good museum if it happens. And that's something that's uh, uh, taking place right now in my, my hometown of Reading. Now, American listeners, Reading is just south of uh, London here in England. Um, it's a fantastically important town. It had a brilliant big abbey that was very important in the Middle Ages. Um, it's got one of the best football teams uh, in the whole of Britain who, uh, who are doing quite well in our championship, which is our second league. <laughs> um, but it's also most famous, perhaps, for having a, a very important prison in it. Now, Reading Jail, which opened in 1844, designed by George Gilbert Scott, who was the father or grandfather of Giles Gilbert Scott, famous Gothic revival architects of the times. So he designed it, and it was quite a creepy design. It was one of those prisons where a few wardens could watch an awful lot of people because of the way that the corridors were arranged and the positioning of everything. Um, so it was to do very much with, with surveillance and how you kept an eye on the prisoners. And um, the most famous prisoner there turned up in 1895, and that was Oscar Wilde. So the great writer Oscar Wilde, after his trial for indecency, was sentenced to two years hard labour, and most of that time was spent in Reading Jail, where he wrote a very famous tract called De Profundis, which was a kind of open letter to his love, his beloved uh, Lord Alfred Douglas, but it's full of great lines about civilization and the meanings of relationships and important bits of poetry like that. I remember there's a line in it that says, the, um, the supreme vice is shallowness. Oscar Wilde wrote that to be the supreme vice is shallowness. And that's from De Profundis. He also later, when he came out of prison and ran away from England, headed to France straight away, he wrote his great ballad of Reading Jail, that wonderful poem about a, a man who's being sent to be executed at Reading Jail. And it's based very much on, on real life observations that Wilde made uh, when he was in the prison. There's that famous line about, uh, yet each man kills the thing he loves, by each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. It's great lines, all sort of thought up in Reading Jail, right? So this wonderful place, Reading Jail, closed down recently, um, and there's been a big move to try and turn it into an arts centre in Reading, a big arts centre. Reading hasn't got one, which is a wonderful idea for it. I mean, this place has got this dark poetry at its centre, um, but there's another bunch of people involved in this um, who are also bidding to turn it into a block of flats. So it's, go it's either going to become a big plush block of flats, which seems a ridiculous thing to turn a prison into, or it's going to become an arts centre. And that battle's waging now around us. And as you know, Bendy, I'm, I'm, I'm totally for the arts centre. Yeah, well, that would be lovely too. I mean, I don't, I can't easily see how you turn a, a block of prison cells into either an arts centre or a block of flats, to be honest. I mean, if it's an arts centre, is the idea that each artist gets a little cell as a studio? I suppose that could work quite nicely. Um, I think they'll break down some of the walls in either case. Um, although there was, uh, that's actually a beautiful and really interesting exhibition held there. Uh, this is, I think, what gave everybody the idea of the arts centre. I think it's 2016, which was, uh, you know, one of the anniversaries of Oscar Wilde leaving prison. They opened the prison up and the cell in which Oscar Wilde wrote De Profundis 
was open to visitors. You could go in there, sit on his bed, as it were, sit in his cell and read it. And it was very atmospheric. But the spaces are interesting. You know, the cells are small, so I think you would have to bang down at some walls. But there's a big courtyard, there's this atmospheric space. I mean, it takes nothing to imagine it being rebuilt as a really interesting art centre. It takes a lot more to think of it making a decent block of flats. So the only way they can do that is by knocking it all down, I think. Well, let's um, hope they don't, because uh, well, one of the striking things about this building is it's actually, it has a certain sort of beauty, and it, uh, not just a grim beauty, that sort of Victorian attention to detail and the emphasis of form as much as function. And it's it's quite surprising how many of these industrial and, and grim buildings from the Victorian era we want to repurpose into houses that we live in and pay a top dollar for. I mean, you can't really imagine anybody converting a modern prison into a block of flats, can you? But and that reflects more on the sort of the value we place on architecture these days, I suppose. Mm. It's very atmospheric. I mean, you know, having grown up in Reading, we all knew Reading Jail. It, it loomed up in the city's history. It was right next to Reading Abbey, which is a very, very important Cistercian Abbey from the Middle Ages. All kinds of things happened there. You know, there were even coronations of English kings that went on there. So it's Reading, which is not the most beautiful of, of cities, to be fair. Um, this gave it a, a kind of centre, strangely moody centre, Reading Jail with the Abbey next to it. It would just be so good to do something good with it. Oh, you know the um, graffiti artist Banksy, the famous graffiti artist Banksy? Well, he did something on the outside of the jail. Did you hear about this? I saw um, a, a piece of graffiti art with someone climbing down a rope, I think. Yeah, so he turned up one night and on the prison wall he painted a lovely little mural of, um, yes, a prisoner escaping from the prison. And so he's climbing down this knotted rope of sheets, you know, like someone out of a, out of a prison movie, um, and dangling from him below is a typewriter. So you see this guy trying to get out with his typewriter, you immediately think of Oscar Wilde, you immediately think of great things being written in the prison. Um, and it was very good of Banksy to, to put that there because, of course, Banksy's are worth millions of quid. So nobody wants now to knock down that wall. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 as it's a quite a tricky and clever move. I mean, he's certainly, you know, obviously he would prefer to see it as an art centre. He's made it a lot harder for the authorities to, to knock down the wall or to turn it into a block of flats. So good on your Banksy. Keep at it. Well, good luck to whoever's running that particular campaign. And, um, yeah, we should go and visit if it turns into an art centre. We will. We can have a we're going to have a podcast live from there from the from the very first week if it opens. Um, final story. Final story uh, from the art world, and I think this is shocking. Do you remember there was supposed to be a big exhibition in Tate Modern this year by an artist called Philip Guston? Now he's an artist who I like a lot. You don't like so much, but I think we can at least agree that he was. Um, uh, a, a fierce opponent of the system, a lifelong anti-fascist, a brilliantly effective political manoeuvrer. Uh, and this show, we had loads of people really looking forward to it. It was cancelled at the last minute for these dodgy reasons that people people said that some some people might misinterpret some of the imagery. So one of the images of evil that Guston used in his work was the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he spent his whole life attacking the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, I saw this mural by him that he painted in Mexico in the 1920s, and it's got the Ku Klux Klan as absolute embodiments of evil um, being attacked and, 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 and kicked down into hell by the good guys. So there's absolutely no ambiguity, really, about, about his idea of what the Ku Klux Klan represents and represented. And yet, because there are these images in some of his paintings, that seemed to be the main reason why the show was cancelled. 
And, you know, it was an absolutely ludicrous decision, in my, in, in my opinion. Um, and it led to the curator of the exhibition, a guy called Mark Godfrey, writing a complaint about it all on his Instagram site. And, uh, and as a result of that complaint, uh, he was, uh, first of all, suspended from Tate Modern because they must have deemed that he was doing something irregular or breaking some kind of confidence. And then just recently, we've heard that he's had to leave. So he's left Tate Modern. One of their best curators has gone. And I think the whole thing is dingy and points to such a bad direction for all museums, but certainly for Tate Modern. Yeah, do you know what? I read um, Mark's, as you say, complaint on uh, when it was originally published. And um, it was really quite mild stuff. I mean, it was just making a series of points in defence of Philip Guston and the exhibition, as you've done yourself. And there was nothing controversial about it. And Tate's reaction points to a really worrying trend in our museum world here in the UK. And that is this sort of stifling of any opinion, of anything mm. that might be termed dissent. I mean, we're going to be discussing this later, but I've been in touch with a, quite a few people who've been affected by the, you know, the round of cuts that are coming in all these institutions. Uh, and, and, and not just in museums, but heritage institutions, places like the National Trust as well. And what I've discovered from them is, I don't think it's saying it too strongly to call it a climate of fear that people who work for these organisations feel they're under in terms of what they can and cannot say. They really fear saying anything that might get them reprimanded. And there's a sort of, um, it's a bit Orwellian. And I just mm. find it extraordinary that institutions which exist to promote creative thinking and creativity in our country end up sort of ruling their staff with this sort of rod of iron and tolerating no dissent and opinion. And the, the really extraordinary thing is that in this day and age um, with social media, uh, it's very difficult to find people who don't have opinions or who've never said anything controversial or risky in their lives. And and if museums carry on with this kind of we can't tolerate anything controversial or dissent approach, they're going to end up employing only the dull and the very timid. And that's going to make for really terrible institutions in the future. But twas ever thus, um, Ben, do you, is it, what's interesting about this is that Tate Modern, right, when it arrived, was supposed to be the home of contemporaneity, the future, modernity. And it was, as it were, you know, it was progress taking over from the establishment and showing us all a new direction forward. But what happened to it, what has happened to it, is what always happens to these things. It has become the establishment. It has now become the organisation which basically rules the contemporary art world in, in Britain. So... Stupid things like who gets an MBE these days, you know, or an OBE, you know, a Queen's Honours. It ain't going to be you. It ain't going to be me. It's going to be someone chosen by the Tate's bosses because they're all in with that now. You know, they organise the exhibitions. They rule the art world. And it's very, very like what happened in Paris in the 1860s. Now, Paris had this thing called the Salon, which was the mm. official art world where everybody did what they were told and they made all this art, which was supposed to make you better. You know, which is the Tate is doing the same thing at the moment, I think, in some of its shows. You know, it, it, you, you produce this heroic art of Romans fighting against 500 Persians heroically on a bridge and saving it through their valour and their honour. But you get similar things now with Tate exhibitions that their only real ambition seems to be to politically improve you. Um, <laughs> and so the Salon came along and insisted on all this stuff and it was in complete control of the art world. It did, everybody did what it told them to do. But how did it get overthrown? Who overthrew the Salon? Was it the commune? 
as the no. impressionists. Oh, sorry. <laughs> See, the impressionists turned up and started having exhibitions outside the system. That's mm. what they did. They had a show in Nadal's studio. They had shows in little galleries in Paris. And they kind of, they took over the art world, really, by ignoring the main art world. And that, that is what happens. And it's happening now. See, Banksy painting his stuff on the walls of Reading Prison. That's not a Tate activity. That's his activity. Mm. A lot of the wonderful art by black artists and black lives matter movement that is being made at the moment that's outside the system too that's outside all the museums and, and you know it's, it's as always art is the winner in the end i think in these fights and the big institutions are always the losers but when you've got something as momentous and large and clumsy and huge and expensive as Tate Modern sitting there as this force nowadays for sort of establishment thinking, you know, that's a very big elephant to fall over in the middle of the road. You know, that, that's got, that is a, a huge thing to start going wrong with. So they, they need to get their act together, I think. I mean, you know, they need to start going to, to more artist studios, less biennales, more artist studios, less huge international events, more things happening in Manchester and Liverpool and Reading and Coventry. You know, it needs to change, I think. And the Mark Godfrey affair, is just one aspect of it, in my opinion. Yeah, but it's an important point, isn't it? Because institutions like Tate Modern, these great monoliths, are only ever going to change if they're prepared to have you know, internal discussions and tensions and disagreements. And, and if that's publicly done on Instagram, then frankly, who cares? Hmm. Yep. Um, well, we'll see. Uh, Walden Bendy will definitely be keeping an eye on it. Um, and we continue, I think, um, with the idea of what's happening to museums, the, some of their future, what could they become, uh, with the next bit of the show. Because you've got a very important guest, haven't you, Bendy, that you've been talking to with some important conclusions. So, so tell us about that. Who's coming up and, and what sort of things are we uh, going to be hearing? Well, Waldy, I've been speaking to Charles Somery Smith, a giant of the British museum world. He's recently retired as Secretary and Chief Executive of the Royal Academy, and before that he was Director of the National Portrait Gallery in London, and then the National Gallery, so that's before Nick Penny and the current director, Gabriele Finaldi. He's now written a book, The Art Museum in Modern Times, published by Thames & Hudson, which charts the development of the public museum, in particular from an architectural perspective. <laughs> interview. I began by asking him if good architecture was really an essential ingredient for a good museum. Well, Bendo, having written a long book about the architecture of museums, I think you can probably guess what my answer is to that. I'm, I'm what Nick Penny refers to disparagingly as one of those building directors. <laughs> In other words, I think the experience of art is influenced by the way people see the things within the setting, so that the setting is important as well as the art itself. I approve your directing, your building direction um, achievements, Charles, but I have to say that sometimes it feels to me that uh, the architecture does get in the way, especially when you consider that we seem to endlessly restart these things. The Sainsbury Wing at the National Gallery in London, um, we're now having to redo it 30 years later. I think it is interesting how short a span these buildings sometimes now have, so that the Sainsbury Wing, the entrance was designed deliberately by Bob Venturi and Denise Scott Brown to be quite dark, like a monastic entrance. Mm. And the idea was that you got used to the dark and then you climbed the great staircase 
and you discover the light of the Sainsbury Wing galleries, which I think have worn very well. But now, Gabrielli, who I like very much and admire, feels that you can't have a gloomy entrance to a museum and art gallery. It's got to be pulsating and exciting and attracting people in from Trafalgar Square. So the brief is, in a way, how to rev up the Sainsbury Wing, which means that they will almost certainly get into trouble, if only with Denise Scott Brown, because she and Bob Venturi designed it so carefully based on the experience of going to Italian churches. And that experience is bound to be changed. Those galleries upstairs in the sense we have aged well, haven't they? I love them. And um, Gabriella, who I admire as much as you do, um, well, he's already got in trouble with me and Wildy because we think the money could be better spent elsewhere. You, can we turn, and you've been director of three major uh, national institutions, and, uh, and now that we emerge from the pandemic, we can see that museums are um, in a bit of a tight spot. What do you think are the, the most significant challenges that they face? And if, if perhaps, if you were culture minister, which I suppose is a natural progression for you, if we put you in the House of Lords for a moment to make you culture minister, um, how, you, would you, how would you address these challenges? I don't see it happening. Uh, very obviously, but um, my general feeling is obviously the biggest problem is going to be funding, because given the simply colossal sums of money which have been spent by government in order to keep the country semi-going, there's not going to be a lot for culture. There won't be. And how museums respond and react, I think, is not totally clear, but it's clearer now than it was a year ago. They've all had to cut, as we're seeing at the moment with the V&A. Uh, I think there's bound to be a reduction in huge blockbuster exhibitions, although, of course, blockbuster exhibitions are what bring people in in order to spend money, so that that will be a big bind. Mm. And I suspect people will do more exhibitions, which they were already doing from their own perm permanent collection. Transport is going to be the big problem. Um, can we just touch on that, actually? Uh, in, your, in your years of working museums, have you noticed a sort of a, what I call a museum inflation? Because it seems to me that things like transport putting on exhibitions has become vastly more expensive. Surely 30 years ago, you didn't always have to send a, a curator as a courier with a painting who went to business class um, with everything you know beautifully wrapped up and with five art handlers handling it all the time. I mean, I speak as someone who, who's who perhaps recklessly has ferried around multi-million pound paintings um, in a taxi. Well, I, I think I'm now allowed to reveal that the Duke of Northumberland delivered the Madonna of the Pinks from Annick to the National Gallery, wrapped in an old copy of the Times, which he bought in the boot of his car, <laughs> which uh, once it became valued at 35 million, wouldn't probably have been thought to be hugely desirable, but it survived. And people probably were a bit more casual. Uh, but now, loan agreements. I, th I, I think I know it was after my time. You know, there's this group called the Bezo Group, which is basically Museum Directors of the World. And they have tried to reduce the cost of sending a career business class with a separate seat for the work of art alongside them uh, and then staying in hotels which of course they have to do which is very very expensive 
I suppose it's a question of balancing the risk. I mean, the, the risk of something happening to the painting, but also we seem not to put into the equation the risk of pictures never going anywhere. I mean, I sometimes wonder if 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 registrars, if some registrars had their way, things would stay in the basement in the dark all the time, uh, and no picture would come to any harm, but nobody would ever see it. Well, when I went to the portrait gallery, my predecessor, John Hayes, had been very, very particular. People rather underestimate John, who was in his own way quite shrewd. Uh, and he felt, as you do, that the cost of loans was a result of having in-house conservation departments who you couldn't say no to. So he refused to have an in-house conservation department. So that if the consultant conservative said he couldn't do something, he could ignore the advice, which <laughs> I suspect he quite often did. So that, that is a generational thing. I think now everybody is totally enthralled to conservators who are very powerful within the environmental museums. And nobody, including me, would ever dare to say it's a bad idea. Well, that, yes, because there was an interesting case a while ago where um, Eike Schmidt at the Uffizi overruled his conservation committee of advisors, didn't he, in lending a raffle to an exhibition in Rome, um, and and that so that is a new a newish thing, isn't it? The the sudden rise in the power of the conservators within a museum. Uh, but do you think do you think we've given them too much power because inevitably they're going to be very risk averse and say that you can't risk moving a painting because a slight vibration might damage it? I, I noticed the Uffizi is planning to move works of art out into the Tuscan countryside. And I noticed that there was a proposal in the papers this week that maybe we could use some of these wonderful redundant churches to show works of art. So that I think, like lots of things in life, one forgets that these things are relatively recent. And before that, works of art survived <laughs> reasonably intact, living a much bumpier life. That people were, as you know, were more casual about their attitude to to damage. Yes. Well, it's, I suppose it's an, an attitude to risk, but uh, the net result of this fear of, of doing anything or, or challenging the power of, of voices like conservatives in museums is uh, everything stays in storage. Um, and and I, find, I find that, I think that's a real problem museums have to face these days, especially when we consider the sort of the hoarding of the nationals in London and the Southeast versus the, uh, the scarcity of, of great works sometimes in the regions. Well, as you probably know, I'm very sympathetic to that view. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the portuguese was that we had a very strong sense of linkage with the museums and galleries in the, in the regions. And I felt that was a very good thing to be able to do in the way that the V&A used to do the circulation department and I think has been planning to restart the circulation department, but whether they will now be able to afford to, I don't know. Well, more art in circulation. I'm, I'm all for that. Um, finally, can we, can we end by touching on something you uh, mentioned in your book, which is um, the journey that museums have been on from, say, the beginning of the 20th century, when the expectation is that you as a visitor would go in and be guided the sort of voice of God, this great authority, you would be guided through the, the galleries and, and told a rather uh, perhaps rigid but authoritative 
um, view of art history. And now, is there a risk that the pendulum has come a little bit too far in the other direction? Because some museums seem to have suffered a, a crisis of confidence because authority is viewed as a bad thing. I, I didn't expect to find that as obviously as became clear to me while I was writing the book. When I started at the V&A, the galleries were there in order to instruct and you would learn about the history of 18th century decorative arts or the evolution of ceramics by going to the ceramics gallery. And they would be laid out in a systematic order. And there was somebody behind the scenes who was telling you information in rather uh, unsatisfactory ways in tiny labels. But still, there, there was a sense of systematic order. Now, increasingly, in the same way that you have the rise of conservation departments, you have the rise of, they're called different things, visitor experience. Most museums will have people who are advocates for visitor experience. And that's to do with the visitor wanting, as is clear from the book, to construct their own narrative and that their view is as legitimate as the curator's. Mm. But I tried not to do it too judgmentally, but it is equally possible that after a bit, people will think, well, actually, I want to read a book and I want to know about Piero della Francesca. I don't want to just <laughs> think about the baptism in terms of my own emotional experience. Well, uh, an example you mentioned, and something I'm afraid I regret to say I bang on about all the time, uh, is uh, Tate's website, uh, taking text from Wikipedia and therefore not spending resources on its own curators writing its own text. Now, if you take that kind of approach to its logical conclusion, don't you render redundant what a museum is for? It just becomes basically a shed, a display space. Uh, and if you're going to, um, if you've lost such confidence in your own authority that you just say, well, uh, we'll get someone else to do the job, isn't isn't there a risk that funders, the government, even the punters, will turn around and say, well, what are we paying you all this money for? We'll just have walls and hang the pictures up. I, I actually did get very critical through the course of the work I did of museum and gallery websites because I had understood that when the web became available, there would be an infinite amount of information which you could explore and discover and find out what you wanted to discover. I think um, increasingly websites are used as a machine for marketing. And I'm afraid I like you, because I've been doing a lot of work during lockdown on contemporary artists. Wikipedia is now increasingly the standard way to find out about artists. But one wants to supplement that with other viewpoints. And traditionally, the uh, Tate website was somewhere where you could find actually a lot of information about pictures. But if there's a view that visitors are put off by deep information because it's inverted commas too academic, and that's not what they're looking for, I think that I, I, I'm completely alongside you in thinking that it's a diminution in the responsibility of museums and galleries. And it seems to me very peculiar because the whole thing about websites is that actually you can, can have different layers and you can go deeper and deeper. And I think mm -hmm. museums should encourage people to go deeper and deeper 
They don't have to, but if you want to, you should be able to find in depth about works of art. That's what museums are there for. Well, Charles, I think that's a lovely moment on which to end. That is indeed what museums are there for. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, well, there you go, Bendy. How interesting. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that book. I'll, I'll definitely give it a good read. Yes, I mean, architecture, of course it's important. Of course it's important. I mean, the way you distribute museums, the way we walk into them, the way they act on you, all those have, have been terribly significant in the way we look at art, haven't they? So I mean, it must have been quite a good book for you to read there. Yes, I enjoyed it. And, I, and I, it made me reflect on how important, actually, despite my questioning at the beginning, how important architecture of museums is for me. So I find um, I literally cannot go into Tate Modern. I find it's oppressive as you approach it. And inside, it's so loud and noisy. And it's a complete sensory overload. So I, I just want to run away. And then the other thing is, um, one of the we didn't discuss it in the interview, but one of the case studies in Charles's book is the Sainsbury Centre for the Visual Arts at UEA. Have you been there? Yes, I have been there. The yes, University yes. of East Anglia in Norwich, which is where I went to university. Ah. Yeah. Now, the, I'm slightly ashamed to admit this. Well, as you know, I never studied art history, but I did have my halls of residence immediately opposite the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts at UEA. And in all my time as an undergraduate there, I never once went into it. And it's hmm. got the most amazing art collection. And, and the reason I never went into it is partly to do with the architecture. It kind of felt like a barrier to me. Mm. I think that tells us a lot about you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I'm um, not. I'm not a good client for museum architects because I. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a famous modern bit of architecture, isn't it? It's got that reflecting wall, isn't it, and all that yeah. stuff on it. I mean, yeah. yeah, I liked it. Um, but anyway, yes, go on. And but you're right. Architecture does mean a lot, and it, it, it should be welcoming, shouldn't it? Museums should be welcoming places. I don't think there's any argument about that. I like that interesting insight into the National Gallery, how the original architects. You know, in their postmodernism, wanted to make it look like a chapel, did you say, or a Roman church, was it? Yeah. That's a lovely idea. Oh, God, that, see, that's now you're talking. That's me through and through. I love going into Roman churches and in the darkness, they're flickering above the altar. It's some great painting by Sebastiano del Piombo. And it's just you, possibly some old museum bloke. You have to, you have to give him a few lira so he lights it up. You know, that, those experiences are so soulful and so wonderful. And any approximation of them, you know, I basically support. So I hope they don't destroy that. I mean, it sounds like they're going to. Well, it sounds like, yeah. I mean, I find the idea of a, of a brash and bright and breezy entrance to a museum completely off-putting. But I must recognise that I'm, as you've mentioned, I'm not your average museum goer, so I'm probably mm. not the right person to comment. Um, but I thought it was interesting what Charles was saying about, you know, he's surprised by how quickly we end up having to change all this museum architecture. And I think if we, if we take one lesson from his book in terms of the architectural point of view, it should be that uh, museums require greater flexibility when it comes to setting out the museum so that they can, you know, if they want to change their exhibition space, they can do that, for example. I just think they should stop rebuilding. Quite honestly, I am so fed up of museums rebuilding all the time. And it's a fairly simple thing. Get a new director, they want to rebuild. That's how it always seems to go. You know, every museum it seems every five years to feel the need for some gigantic rebuild. I mean, the courthold's been closed for, what, two years now? 
Um, and, and, and it was, I remember the last time it was closed, what was it about 10 years ago for another major rebuild? Take Modern's always being rebuilt. The National Gallery, having not been rebuilt for 150 years, has now had, what, three rebuilds in the past 20 years? And I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's a lack of acceptance that some places are just okay, you know, as they are. This constant trying to double guess what viewers want, what people going to museums need. What we most of all need is the consistency of it being there. You know, I just want to go there. I don't want to keep coming across a museum and finding it's closed for two years. Stop it, say I. Stop it. <laughs> well, I think you're going to get your way because, as Charles pointed out, uh, museums in the next few years at least are going to face some significant funding pressures, aren't they? So it's mm. unlikely, uh, the National Gallery in London aside, that they're going to have any cash to splash around on expensive architects. Um, and it looks like we're seeing some quite profound cuts beginning to come through at the moment in terms of uh, staffing and curators. Um, and we must hope that really uh, the emphasis is placed on protecting the staff rather than thinking, gosh, we've got to go out and build a shiny new extension. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. I'll tell you what I also enjoyed, the discussion about conservation. <laughs> um, that made me laugh because, I mean, like you, I've, I've made a lot of films in galleries and museums and the conservation bit of it always makes me laugh. I mean, I, I remember I made a big biography of Vincent van Gogh for, uh, quite a while ago now. And um, part of it, we spent two weeks, two weeks filming in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And they've got, obviously, every letter he ever wrote, every match he ever lit, you know, every cigarette packet he ever threw out. There is just masses amount of stuff there. Uh, and so, the, you know, they basically gave us the key to the vault and said, OK, I'll do what you want. So we went in there for two weeks. We took stuff out. We filmed what we wanted to film. If we wanted a particular image, we, we asked the, the curator and they said, OK, sure. And they brought it in and it was all wonderful. You know, Vincent's real life and we could touch it and what have you. And I remember on the same project the same film we then went to america to film a drawing of his that was in um one of those wonderful you know america's full of these every big city's got a museum and it's got great things in it because rich people have left it to it mm. i better not name it but there was a museum that one of those and it had this um van gogh drawing in there and i remember we started filming it and they said right sit here they put us in this awful dead room at the back um it's a white and clinical room with no nothing that looked good and you're filming it and they said, wait, and we waited for half an hour. Eventually, three people came in carrying this drawing, which was no bigger than a couple of envelopes. You know, it was six inches by 10 inches. And two of them were holding one edge of it, and the other was holding the other. Three people brought in this drawing. You know, spent half an hour positioning it on a, on a sort of lectern for us to film. Asked about the lighting, asked about this, about that. Oh, don't bring the lights too close. And, uh, and, you know, and it took us three hours to film it. And that's what happens when conservators get involved, isn't it? I mean, they, yeah. they have to find some problems. It's the, they think it's their job to get in the way. And, of course, they completely, um, I mean, they, they just go over the top with their demands, don't they? Well, it was interesting you, you gave the example of the Van Gogh Museum because you highlight basically the problem that many modern museums have, which is uh, one of control. They can't let anything go. And often if you talk to the, the curators or the staff there at those museums, they'll talk about our drawing as if it's theirs, it belongs to the museum, when in fact it's ours, it's the public's. Now the Dutch take a very liberal approach to these things and they're very happy to, to share what they have. They're pioneers in Europe in, in what we call open access. And many museums have yet to catch up. British museums have got a long way to catch up. 
but if they can let go of control a little bit, if they can stop being quite so retentive about everything and worried about everything, they might actually find that all sorts of benefits come. Uh, one in particular is that things will get cheaper uh, because um, it's just it's just no good spending all your money on mollycoddling art that doesn't need to be handled in that way. An example I often cite is um, I sold a picture to a museum once and I went to watch it being hung up on the wall. And I'm not joking. To hang this painting, which was a 30 by 25 inch painting in a, in a frame from the 17th century, uh, it took 12 people to hang mm. it up. And this operation took something like three hours. Um, completely ridiculous. Um, another exhibition I was involved in once, we ended up borrowing a miniature from a museum in America, which cost something like $25,000 to bring over. This tiny thing, mm. complete waste. Uh, so um, we, we've got to, museums have to let go because otherwise um, exhibitions are going to stop and art is just going to stay in cupboards and nobody will, will feel the need to go to museums anymore. That's right. Although you then did go on in your discussion with Charles to talk about this interesting aspect of museums, which is, as it were, visitor involvement, um, the way that they're changing from places of education, where fountains of knowledge, if you like, where you go to learn things, into places where you basically go to press some buzzers and have fun. Um, and he rather reluctantly, I think, did, thank God, admit that he had noticed this trend and found it problematic. Um, I personally have banged on about it for a long time in my article so maybe he's read some of mine but it drives me up the wall you know I don't believe you should go to an art gallery to go on ski rides and helter skelters and and um you know big big rollers that's Alton Towers does that for us all very very well we don't need to find that in a museum you know what is wrong with going somewhere to, to learn the important things you know that's what I think museums have always been and I have found a drift away from that towards this other business that's going on and I must say I find it really depressing it's a real barbell dropped on your spirit when you go somewhere and you know that the whole emphasis is just on keeping people entertained and you know you go to Tate Modern on a busy Saturday and it is wonderful that 90% of the people are there because it's they're using it as a creche and they brought their kids and the kids are sliding up and down on the big ramp on their prams and things. I do like that. But once you get into the collection itself, I mean, let's just try and teach them something, you know. Let's, uh, we're not just there to entertain them, don't you think? Mm. No, I entirely agree. And in fact, something that Charles mentions in his book is visitor surveys, showing that many people who go to Tate Modern don't go to look at the art at all, which is fine in one sense. But then when you stand back and you're the government writing the check for this art museum, you know, why should you be persuaded to carry on writing the check? Uh, because, you know, there are far cheaper ways to entertain people in parks than uh, funding expensive art galleries. So museums um, in Britain, they've got to rediscover their mojo. They've got to find their confidence again and stop being afraid of their own shadows. Absolutely. So um, anyway, a good book, I, I imagine. It was, mm. You sounded like you were involved in it. Some interesting points that it makes. Yeah, no, really good book. Yeah. So Wardy and Bendy listeners, they should go out and buy it. Charles Somary Smith's new book about museums. Yes, uh, published, as I say, by Thames and Hudson. Uh, it's available at the end of the month, and it's called The Art Museum in Modern Times. Excellent. Well, that's something else for us to fret about. It can uh, join a very, very long list of things that we've been complaining about in the art world, the things that are happening to museums. But fortunately, Bendy, you and I have our great release. See, some people are unlucky. They're stuck where they are. They can't move from wherever it is that they're positioned. But we don't have to do that because we can escape to somewhere else and get something better. On the Wall
Bendy, the fun bit at last, where uh, you get to choose what you want to look at in your incarceration up there in Scotland by having something, anything you want on your wall, and I can do the same. Um, it's the bit where uh, we really can indulge some good old-fashioned art historical fun and knowledge. So what are you going with this week? Well, I've gone again for Rembrandt, and I'm, I'm sorry about that in a way, because I chose a Rembrandt or a possible Rembrandt for my choice of On the Wall last week, The Man of the Golden Helmet from Berlin. Um, I've gone for Rembrandt again, mainly because I wanted to encourage you, Weldy, and fellow listeners, um, to watch a documentary which is available on Amazon Prime which is called mm. My Rembrandt. It's, it's one of the best art documentaries I've ever seen. Actually. It's so beautifully filmed. And it follows a handful of people who are lucky enough to own privately uh, their own paintings by Rembrandt. One is the Duke of Buccleuch, Another is um, an American financier called Thomas Kaplan. And the, the last is an art dealer, a friend of mine actually, called Jan Six. He's a Dutch oh. art dealer. Um, and the main plot of the film is about Jan, his pursuit of a sleeper, that is a miscatalogued painting, which came up for auction in London in 2016. Uh, and it was catalogued as Circle of Rembrandt. And the estimate was just 15 to 20,000 pounds. Now, Jan thought it was indeed by Rembrandt. And the picture was uh, on view at Christie's in London. And uh, he describes dashing down King Street through St. James's Square to the National Gallery, where there was a painting very similar from the same period, about the 1630s, a, a properly catalogued Rembrandt, a portrait of a sitter called Philips Lukash. And Jan describes mm. seeing the similarities in the way Rembrandt painted the collars in both pictures. And he thought, well, the picture of Christie's is by Rembrandt. I'm going to try and buy it. And he ended up paying, uh, I think, around about £140,000 with with all the costs added in. And the film charts his his success in the end of of getting the great Rembrandt scholar Ernst van der Vettering to give the picture the thumbs up. It's a really, uh, really lovely film. And it highlights something which I think we sometimes forget about in art history. We tend to assume that we sort of know everything and that uh, we know who painted what when. But actually, there is so much to discover, even works by an important artist as Rembrandt. And I choose this particular painting. I don't know where it is now, if Jan sold it or I don't know. But I choose it to have in my on the wall for a few weeks at least, uh, because while the eye was one of the underbidders of this picture, um, <laughs> I, I had the same conclusion as Jan. I'm not, I'm not trying to sort of show off and say, uh, I can spot a Rembrandt too, but, but I had a good hunch on this one, and I did exactly the same journey that he describes, which is uh, running out of Christie's in some excitement to the National Gallery and thinking, crikey, this is by Rembrandt. And that's a thrilling moment, which I'd like to replicate and just have the picture on my wall at home uh, because he's cleaned it and restored it and it's looking absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure, absolutely sure, it is indeed by Rembrandt. Right, yeah. I remember the story. I remember it. it was quite big news, wasn't it? Uh, because Jan Six was the descendant, was he the 10th grandson or something of Jan Six, the guy who appears in the famous Rembrandt painting with a glove. Yeah. Um, so that gave him a certain pertinence. But wasn't there, wasn't there some... Sorry to, to, to go on about this because I don't really remember it clearly, but wasn't there some sort of confusion or shenanigans involving a restorer at the same time who also claimed that he was bid well, for it or something? There was well, something like that was going on. There's something slightly uh, complex about it, wasn't there? Well, you always tend to get these stories in the art market, but the, there are various twists in the tale, which I don't really want to sort of, I don't want to set up too many spoilers for anybody who wants to watch ah. the documentary. So it, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting story in itself. 
looking at the picture, right, um, and I, don't, I haven't seen it in the flesh. I've only seen your reproduction of it. And I've seen also the pre-cleaning and post-cleaning versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be less confident than you about the attribution. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the bit about the collar, which seems to be the thing that um, has united uh, you and Jan Six in your enthusiasm for the Rembrandt, because the National Gallery portrait that you talk about, the, the portrait of, of Philips Lucas, yep. has a very, very similar collar painted in a similar way. Mm-hmm. No arguments there. Um, but there's also another painting that popped up that's supposed to be Philip Lukash's wife. Is that right? Uh, it's a sort of pendant painting. That's right. Um, which isn't, I don't know, it, it, it just feels, compared with the uh, unarguable Rembrandt of the Philip Lukash, there's something about the way the face is done. I'm not as convinced, and I'm not 100% convinced by this. I don't, uh, since the cleaning, the background looks less convincing to me than before. I think I liked it better when it was mm-hmm. dirty. This clean grey, there's something of the Photoshop look about the way the figure sits on it. Um, but that might just be a cleaning thing. So although, of course, I, as always, I, 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 I bow at your feet in, your, in terms of attributions <laughs> and worship every move and every, every comment you make, um, I'm just at this stage slightly less convinced by this, which is not to say I don't like it. I do like it. Of course, it's a wonderful picture. And who wouldn't like um, something that is what unarguably as Rembrandtish as this hanging up on their wall for a week? Yeah. Well, you, you, you put your finger on something quite interesting. I think one of the reasons why uh, it sometimes happens to the, the biggest name artists, one of the reasons their earths get whittled down, we did discuss this last week, is because we we end up with a fixed idea of the creme de la creme of what they produced. Uh, and then we tend to assume that they must have been in their A-game all the time, every year throughout their career. And everything mm. that doesn't quite come up to that level, we sort of chuck out. Good point, good point. Yeah. And that's not actually the case, particularly when, you know, artists like Rembrandt with great numbers of students around them, often working on the same canvases at the same time, um, you can get pictures like this one, which is, which you know, for all I think it's by Rembrandt, it's, it's definitely not a great Rembrandt. But I just think uh, if you, like me, your art history is all about doing justice to various artists, um, mm. then uh, it's still worth it trying to um, trying to get to grips with who actually did paint what, or rather who painted parts of what. Mm. And in any case, let's face it, if you like the picture, who gives a damn, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it is fetishizing the, uh, this whole idea of the original, it's over-fetishizing it, which we do, we're guilty of doing that, aren't we, as a society? We do far too much of that. And what the least you can say about it is that it's very Rembrandt-like and in the Rembrandt you know, mode. Um, and I mean, if you think about all those fantastic Rembrandt pictures that have been downgraded by the Rembrandt Research Institute. You know, they even said the Polish rider wasn't by him at one point. Um, you know, all that needs kicking into touch, doesn't it? Because uh, just as we have, as you so rightly say, I think, an idea that all artists are always playing at the, at the top of their game and, and always at, at their very best. Um, so also we tend to think of the creation, the very act of creation as a singular thing. And we forget that there's always someone there's always someone putting the paint in the pots and cleaning the brushes and probably doing bits of the co- the costume. And, you know, the, it was always in these studios a much more multi-handed task, wasn't it, than we tend to uh, accept these days. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I'm all for uh, what you say is the fetishization of this, um, you know, who painted what 
win attribution business uh, because I, I just think, you know, I think it's important to actually try and work it out and do justice to the artist. It's a bit like, um, you know, all the books and programs that you've made. How would you feel if in 50 years time someone else came along and stuck my name to, <laughs> to your books and programs? Uh, you probably wouldn't be best pleased. Well, I wouldn't, but you know, it would do a great favor to you, you know, because it, it would it would Im immediately increase your um, your reputation. So, you know, I'm a kind guy. I've got nothing against that, Pendy. If that's what you want to do, you do it. Put it this way: I can see your raison d'être there. Oh, good. Well, I'll try it then. <laughs> now, I've gone for something completely different, as always. So, this week is the one year. Well, anniversary seems the wrong word for it, but it's it's one year since a black American lady called Breonna Taylor was tragically killed in her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it was a notorious case. You've probably heard about it since, although the police uh, who, who did it managed to get away pretty much scot-free. Uh, what happened was that um, they had been tipped off by somebody about a drug situation taking place in the flat. Um, they expected to find this chap who had previously been uh, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend there, but he wasn't there. Instead, her new uh, boyfriend was there, a man that she loved, someone who who was about to, to in fact, ask her to marry him. Um, he was there. The police turned up with what they call um, a no-knock warrant, which means you don't have to say anything. You just bash the door down and go in. They turned up with a no-knock warrant, knocked the door down, and started firing at the occupants of the flat, so that was Brianna Taylor and and her boyfriend, and killed her. Um, six bullets uh, went into her. Um, it became um, a cause that was much talked about in um, American news reels and, and news programs, etc. It came up during the various events around the White House with the presidential races. Like George Floyd, she's become this potent symbol of, of Black Lives Matter. And her tragic case, this disgraceful um, shooting of this young lady, has, has come on to, to haunt the American imagination, really. Um, because it's one year on from that event, various American artists have paid tributes to her um, and painted her. And I've picked one by an artist I like very much called Amy Sherald. And you might know her. She was, I think it's about 2016. Do you remember um, the, when Michelle Obama and Barack Obama had their portraits done by contemporary artists? And Barack Obama had his portrait done by Kahinda Wiley. And Michelle Obama had her portrait done by Amy Sherald. And so it's the same artist. That it, that's what gave her her prominence. And I just love this image, you know. I love it so much. I haven't just picked it because of the pertinence of the occasion. I think it's such a beautiful painting. Um, it shows uh, Brianna Taylor staring at us with a very sort of sad look, but proud, you know, confident, hand on the hip, wearing this beautiful dress, which apparently was designed specially for the painting. This, uh, this painting was put on the cover of Vanity Fair at some point. And so they got a, um, an American designer who specialised in clothes for larger women, I think they're called. And, and it's beautiful blue dress that she's wearing and looking out at us. She looks so gorgeous with this soulful look. It's just such a touching and wonderful image, and it's full of little details, which maybe I'll tell you about in a minute. But just first of all, isn't it a wonderful thing, Bendy? It is a lovely thing. It's it's an object of beauty, um, which helps us to remember uh, the person behind the terrible and tragic circumstances of their death. And uh, perhaps we can discuss later on the, the slight but important differences between uh, portraits done from life and posthumous portraits. 
Um, but I think uh, I think this is a really um, lovely image in and of itself. Yeah, she apparently had a lot of trouble deciding on what colour to have the dress. I mean, I read an interview with Amy Sherald and um, she said she tried green, she tried blue, she tried yellow, and then eventually decided on this wonderful blue. And the reason is that um, uh, Brianna Taylor was born in, in March and apparently the birthstone for March is aquamarine. Hmm. So it's like an aquamarine gem, the dress that she's wearing. And because the, the boyfriend who was with her in the apartment, he, he didn't die. Um, he's still alive, but he, he later said that he, that he was about to propose marriage to her. Um, so, so Amy Sherald has, has given her an engagement ring. If you look on her oh. on her left hand, you can just see she's put an engagement it. ring in there. Yeah. As a, so, so it becomes a painting about the future, uh, about what this lady could have been, you know, about what Breonna Taylor might have been, uh, about about the future, yeah. So that's something I suppose you can do with a posthumous picture. You can bring your own imaginings to it. You can expand on it by having these other thoughts involved. Um, and it just gives it yet another layer, I think, of, of, of not just a beauty, but a but a sort of emotional impact. Hmm. Well, um, I remember when I was, when I used to be in the art trade, uh, we always had a sort of, um, the value of a portrait was greater if it had that tangible life connection to a subject. So if you could prove it, I mean, something uh, derived from a life sitting, it was deemed to be better and, and more interesting and more valuable than something that was done uh, posthumously or a copy and i still believe in it i think you know i think if we if we accord a good portrait artist their due then they can bring us something really quite tangible and important from that that historical moment that encounter with the sitter now obviously you can't get that with a posthumous picture uh, in this case the fact that amy Sherald was not able to to paint Breonna taylor uh, from life has its own power, doesn't it? So the painting, although it's not necessarily, you know, a portrait in a conventional sense, it's more of an icon. It still, it still speaks to us and has um, uh, an importance. But uh, sometimes I think museums can um, can go a little bit astray if they lose touch of the importance. I think of of portraits that are done from life or have a, a tangible connection to the sitter. I, the the National Portrait Gallery in London, I think they are when they reopen it sounds as if they're going to go about plugging some of the gaps of historical sitters in their collection by creating posthumous portraits. And, and I think in this case with Breonna Taylor, when it's done immediately after the, the person died and obviously in conjunction uh, with people who knew and loved her, that's not such a problem. But when it's, when it's done centuries after the event, I think it begins to become quite a questionable activity. Hmm. I just think it's good to be having portraits in museums again. You know, I mean, it's such a fundamental human desire, isn't it? To see in art, to see representations of the people we share our space with. Uh, and there was a long time, I mean, you know, Tate Modern was the last time they put on a portrait of any kind, a portrait show. You know, it, it's a forgotten part of, of the modern art experience, or rather it has been until now. And a lot of, um, Particularly, I think black women artists have been doing portraiture and, and, and sharing their art with the people in their world. I'm all for it, 100%. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. On the um, ZCZ, ZCZ uh, web pages where we have the stuff about the podcast, I'm going to put up another picture of Breonna Taylor, which is um, from the same exhibition. This is all going into an exhibition in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Speed Art Gallery from the same exhibition. It's a picture by Njideka Kunyini Crosby, also of, of Breonna Taylor. And I love that one as well. Um, I just think it's a good thing. Portraiture's back. Um, portraiture meaning something important. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something I've been waiting for, frankly, for, for a couple of decades. So uh, bring it on. 
Oh yeah, I'm all for that. Well, Portugal got me into art history, um, and I've, I'm delighted to see, as you say, making a resurgence, particularly in America. Anyway, that's enough. 22 listeners in America. We're thinking about every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Thank you also to the chap in Tokyo. Great that you're listening. Thank you to the one in New Zealand. Madam, it's an honour to be broadcasting to New Zealand. Thank you all of you international listeners. From me, Waldy, it's goodbye. And from me, Bendy, it's cheerio. Waldy and Bendy.